all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a great midweek, a uh, shortened week because of Labor Day for most people. I know some people had to work, um, like my wife, but uh, other than that, um, I hope everybody else is doing well this week. I hope everybody stayed safe. This is Southern Remedy, the program on MPB Think Radio, where we take your calls during the hour about any kind of health care issues that you may be having or someone in your family or maybe friends are having. Any kind of question related to medications or new symptoms that you're having, maybe it's a new diagnosis that you don't quite understand at this point, feel free to call us this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you're unable to call, feel free to email us at remedy at mpbonline.com. Org. I also want to encourage people to call earlier in the program. Uh, calling early sort of secures you a little bit more time than those who uh, wait till about the last 15 to 20 minutes of the program. We do like to give everyone uh, the time that they need to answer their question or point them in the right direction. So please keep that in mind as you um, as you prepare to call in. I know the first time that you caught the first caller of the hour, that's sort of a a little bit of a trepidation with that, maybe a little nervous. Uh, that's okay. Certainly, your question is not going to be one that only you have. I can guarantee you that. Usually, for every question that we receive, there's at least five to ten other people out there that are listening that do have the same kind of, kind of symptoms or same questions in mind. Um, also, uh, email. It's not just while we're on the air. Certainly, we have uh, lots of time uh, to review those during the week. Uh, we try to get back to individuals who have questions about their emails, uh, but we also like to share those too. I'm going to share one this morning that we received this week. Uh, so this comes from a uh, listener that says, as someone with asthma, is there any danger of inhaling fibers from cotton face mask? As I breathe in, as I breathe in, if I were to touch the face mask with my tongue, I can feel the fibers still attached to the mask coming towards my mouth, and that worries me. So cotton fibers are uh, fairly large in diameter. I know I have, I have uh, had the same sensation wearing some of my mask. Uh, of course, masks uh, are made of different materials, but those little cotton fibers are just like you would be wearing at any other time. And um, it's, it's of a certain size that the chance of that uh, being breathed in and, and going down into your lungs and causing some damage is incredibly small. Uh, you'd probably feel that uh, before it went down into your lungs. And certainly there's not much risk, if any, uh, of somebody with asthma or other lung disease of that happening. So the main thing is it's a different sensation because a lot of people haven't um, 
you know, worn masks that much. I can tell you, you know, having worn masks all of my career off and on uh, for various things, certainly not as much as a surgeon would. Um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, sensations that you have to get sort of used to and having something that close to your face. But should be totally safe if you have asthma. I would encourage you to do that just because of having lung disease, although the data doesn't suggest that there's any increased risk. You certainly would want to be careful with that. So thanks for that uh, for that email question. And uh, if you have an email question, don't forget to send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. We've got our first caller on the line. It's Ann from, I believe, West Tennessee. Good morning, Ann. Good morning, Dr. Demi. Thank you so much for your show. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Okay. In a nutshell, um, our youngest daughter um, um, is in her 30s, and her husband, last year on July 30th, he got stung by two bees, they think, simultaneously and went into a coma. They didn't think he'd be able to ever come out of that state. But a few weeks later, he came out. He's been at Tepper Center. He's doing great. But um, they've been pretty much isolating in North Carolina um, on their farm. And she's been taking care of him 25-8 and then having going to therapies. Um, but um, the bottom line is um, and we've been isolating as much as we can here in Tennessee, we hardly ever go go out unless we have to, and it's usually me. But my question is, and within the next couple of weeks or so, they're coming over here so that she can get a break and we can take care of her. And, you know, we just want to know, we're in our 70s, they're in their 30s, we don't want to um, pass any um, COVID on to him especially but even so as much to her because she's his caretaker and therapist and everything so what we're wondering is just any advice you can give us um, for precautions that we might not think of or um, also where where to go like the CDC and everything Um, I poked around but I just would love your input on it Sure. Thanks, Ann. That's a common question that I get from patients, particularly now that people have been sort of cooped up for a long period of time and they're wanting to visit other areas. Um, Since COVID is, you know, at first, if you think about this historically, there were certain areas in the country that we were trying to avoid or there were certain areas of the country who were trying to avoid people from high risk areas. And at one time, Mississippi was in a group of states that was like that, Tennessee to Um, But uh, now that it's sort of widespread throughout the U.S., it actually is a little bit easier to travel. And if you take some precautions, you can minimize your risk a good bit. So because this virus is transmitted from person to person in close proximity, usually less than two meters or less than six feet, um, the simple things that we're wanting everybody to do, even if you're in close contact with other people, you know, trying to maintain that distance of at least six feet, particularly indoors, um, having a mask on as much as possible uh, and uh, keeping in mind surfaces that need to be clean where you're putting your hands. If you're putting them on your face, particularly your mouth or nose and making sure you're washing those appropriately. Now, I, I would say this too: the, the two week period before the visit is really important. So. Uh, you and your family, who will be the host, 
need to make sure that you're not coming into contact with anybody or any situations where you could be contracting the virus. And then, you know, just coincidentally, once they get there, you may still be in sort of an asymptomatic phase. So I, I wouldn't recommend getting testing beforehand for that. There are some situations where there's extremely high risk, uh, uh, you know, individuals, nursing homes, those kinds of things, long-term care facilities where they do testing, random testing like that. There's some colleges that are actually doing that now um, to sort of mitigate the, the spread of it among those individuals. But that two-week period beforehand, I would probably just lay low as much as possible if you've already been doing that. That's great. Don't change anything. And the same thing for them on their end that will be visiting if they could do that. If you minimize that, those contacts, you should be fairly safe, although you can't be 100% sure of that. But uh, once you get here, having some plans, uh, you know, making sure if they, she's going to be just be staying at your house, Certainly, that would be the safest thing so that you can sort of mitigate going out and getting, uh, getting the virus from somewhere else. We know large groups of people, this is, that's the most likely uh, place that, this, uh, that it's spread. Smaller groups of people, and again, as much as you can stay outside at your house when she's there, that's probably a little bit safer. And probably a dedicated space that she can go, including a bathroom, if you have that available in your uh, in your house that only she could use, that would be helpful too. That sounds perfect. And that's, you're right. We're already kind of hunkering down, but we'll just kind of uh, move it up a notch. And um, we plan once they get here just to be outside or to stay on the on site and not to go, you know, just walking in the, in the woods and everything, but not, you know what I mean? So. Anyway. Yeah, and that's what? and that's fine. If you're six feet apart while you're doing that or, or more, I think it's yes, fairly sir. safe to, to not have your mask on in those situations. Although, you know, again, that's just an added uh, benefit. And we know they work. They can decrease uh, transmission by 40 to 45 percent. So, um, you know, that's even if you want to do it outside, that's fine uh, just to be safe on the safe side. But if you're doing all those things, you should be fine. Of course, travel to your home, uh, you know, minimizing, uh, you know, the stops and other things along the way. And then how, you know, how you uh, where they're going to be staying. It sounds like from the distance, it sounds like it should be a day trip, right? Yes, sir. Straight through. And they're going to minimize yeah. all that. So and one, one other last question about masks. We, we mask all the time and so do they. But what about those clear mask where you can actually um, see the person's face. How how effective are those compared to the stretchy ones? Yeah, it's not going to be as effective just because the seal around the side of your face is not going to be as effective as a cloth mask or a synthetic mask. So it's great, particularly with, you know, with seeing your face and particularly for people who are hearing impaired, I know they make those masks, but if the sides of the mask are not, uh, you know, like a face shield, so I've seen a lot of people just wear the face shield, it's not really effective because you're breathing in and out around the face shield. Uh, so, you know, it's not really equal to the mask. I do know the mask you're talking about, some of them have just a cutout in the middle. That's fine. Of course, it fogs up. There's all kinds of stuff. I've got anti-fog drops on me almost every day just because of the fog problems I have with my glasses and I'm with my mask. So, um, but yeah, I think if it's one where the seal around the sides of the mask is okay, is, is tighter, uh, and it's a fabric material, 
that's okay because you're not going to be breathing through that that uh, you know that plastic part uh, of the mask. It's just around that that piece. If that makes sense. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I was also thinking about the clear mask. If we're socially distancing and in indoors more than six feet apart, maybe, you know, just for some conversations, but I don't know if that's wise or not. Maybe that's yeah, I, again, it's, it's a little bit higher risk inside just because of the ventilation patterns and some of the studies looking at, you know, air droplet size and everything. Uh, so, I, you know, if you can wear it inside, that's fine. If, if not, I would say at least six feet, 12, you know, feet might even be better. So that, that would yes, be fine. Thank you so much. And thank you for being there for all of us always, especially now. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might be experiencing right now. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Lots of good information so far. Again, driven by you, our callers. Uh, we rely on you on Wednesdays to uh, give us the themes for the day so that we can answer those questions and get that information out to everyone else. Uh, got uh, Charlotte, who's been patiently waiting on the line from Cleveland. Good morning, Charlotte. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning. Um, I have asthma and uh, mitral and tricuspid regurgitating heart valves. Uh, I wear N95 masks, and I want to ask, is N95 safe enough? Like, I want to visit my out-of-town grandchildren. There would be one restroom stop and visit them outside at their home, is N95 safe enough for one restroom stop? Yeah, I think that's fine. Are you just going to wear that for the, I mean, what's been, what's recommended is that, you know, uh, for the, for what you're talking about, and this is not a medical use, this is personal use, N95 uh, just means that it's filtering out 95% of the particulates if it's fitted right. So it has to be the right size around your face without any kind of, you know, there's there's a way that you can sort of mold it around your face, particularly over your nose. Um, usually they'll recommend that once those, if they get soiled or if they get uh, wet at all from sweat or something like that, then you should throw those away, not reuse them. There is a way medically that you can sterilize those, but not. it's not recommended at home to do that. 
Um, so if you're just wearing that for the whole trip there or with that one stop, it should be fine. Um, I don't know if you have a supply of them and certainly while you're there, the biggest exposure is probably not going to be that restroom. It's probably going to be once you get there where those other people have been for the last two weeks, because most of the time, the incubation period for this after you get exposed is four to five days. That's the most common time to when you would have your first symptoms after exposure, but it can be anywhere from one day up to 14 days. So making sure that they're doing everything on their end to prevent that um, would be key. But the mask itself should be fine as long as it's not going to get wet. I wouldn't leave it out in, in the sunlight, uh, in the direct sunlight, because you can get some breakdown in some of the fibers that are that make it up. Okay. All right. All thank right. you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to John in Utica. Good morning, John. Good morning, Doctor. Really enjoy your show. Thank you, John. What's what's going on with you this morning? Doctor, I just found out this morning by mail I had the SIBO test last week for my intestines. And uh-huh. I found out that my uh test was is abnormal. That I do have bacterial overgrowth in my small intestines. My question is they're gonna treat with antibiotics, but I have been experiencing high blood pressure spikes. It will go from 120 to 150 in a heartbeat and stay there, and it just makes me feel real sick. I can feel my pressure rise. And I'm wondering, is there a correlation between blood pressure spikes and SIBO? Yeah, so SIBO, for those who don't know, John knows exactly what he's talking about because he's dealing with it is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we have um, bacteria in our large intestine. That's very common, and you need those for your large intestine and the body to function normally. But sometimes you can have overgrowth up into the small intestine. Normally, that's not a place where you want a lot of bacteria. Mm -hmm. And it can cause cause a lot of problems there. And uh, as John said, a lot of times uh, they'll have to treat that appropriately with different regimens. Now, from the from the uh, blood pressure standpoint, particularly if you're having a lot of, of pain or bloating, uh, even just normal gas patterns with with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, certainly it can make your blood pressure go up. Uh, abdominal pain or discomfort is one of the most the hardest ones for people to really control and to live with. Um, and but any type of pain whatsoever can cause blood pressure spikes. Our blood pressure, is, you know, contrary to, to what a lot of people, you know, think, it's, it's not something that's static. It actually changes from moment to moment throughout the day based on a number of factors. And that's good because we need differences in blood pressure to maintain a constant blood supply to all of our organs. But it can go down as much as 20% and should at night uh, if, you, if you measure it during the night. And it can also go up later in the afternoon. It sort of peaks during the day during that time. But there's plenty of other things, anxiety, uh, depression, um, lots of other things that impact our blood pressure and can cause those blood pressure spikes. So I think as they treat you for SIBO, John, 
you know, that would be the telltale sign. Is it, is it actually going to work for your blood pressure? Because blood pressure spikes, it's not something that we can prescribe a blood pressure medication for very easily because that's not the problem. And I, I saw a patient uh, yesterday in my clinic where anxiety was the blood pressure issue, not the blood pressure itself. And particularly if your blood pressure is controlled at other times, and then we add another medication to get the blood pressure down to control those spikes, well, we're going to have lower blood pressures during the day, and that may even be harmful. So the key is figure out what's causing it. And certainly with SIBO, particularly if you're having, you know, depending on what your symptoms are, you could be having some effects of it. So I'd say treat the SIBO first, watch and see if the blood pressure is going to improve. And if not, you may want to you know, get with your doctor and sort of investigate further, a little bit more history on what's happening around those spikes. It might be helpful when you do have those spikes in blood pressure that you, uh, you know, sort of think about what you ate, any kind of other symptoms that you were having at the time, write those down in the days and the times that they were, and then give that back to your doctor so they can be a good detective and try to figure that out. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me ask you this right quick, doctor. Go ahead, John. Sorry, uh, Dr. Jimmy, I actually dropped, dropped John off. So, John, if you want to call back oh, in, uh, I apologize, but if you could do that for us. Yeah, call back, John. We're going to go to a, our now our couple more callers, but uh, sorry about that. We'll get back to you in just a minute. Uh, we have Kay from Memphis who's on the line. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. I hope How are you, you doing? Can, well, I'm, I'm almost recovered. I hope you can answer the question, how did I get to... Um, fractures in my femur and not even know it and one day I tried to get up and I could not get up that's the first thing I knew so I wound up with surgery and rehab and so forth and I'm still using my walker now I am observing next week I'm observing my 90th birthday so I know age somewhere is in there but uh, how did I get them I don't climb trees anymore or anything <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm I used to. Did. I used to climb trees and talking. Right, I know, Kay. I, I've, but well, I, I think, um, yeah, a couple of different things that could be causing that. The most common thing, particularly at age ninety, for a femur femur fracture that you didn't know about. In other words, you don't have any kind of trauma with it. Didn't fall down. Didn't do anything no. special. Uh, is is osteoporosis. So thinning of the bones is the number one cause of that, particularly as you get older. Uh, because you tend to lose bone mass as we age, uh, particularly females. So about one in three females over the age of 70 would have uh, at least some degree of osteoporosis. It actually is common in males too. So about one in five males will have uh, will have a fracture due to osteoporosis over the age of 70. Um, so you can have nothing happen, maybe just getting up and just walking down the hallway and have a fracture, uh, that you didn't know about. So if they have it, they're probably going to do some bone density studies later and they probably went ahead and put you on calcium and vitamin D. Now you could oh, have well, been I, taking I, that. I have a very healthy, uh, supplement <laughs> regimen and have been, and I drink milk like it's water and I do, t you know, and I'm I'm an old retired medical social worker, so uh, I'm very alert to medicine. And uh, so that with my diet and my medications and all, I just wondered how I wound up with such brittle bones. 
Yeah, it's, I, it, you can be doing everything right, Kay, but, uh, you know, it, it sounds like you were in taking the calcium and vitamin D and making sure you're getting calcium in your diet. Uh, and certain activity can help that too, like uh, load-bearing exercises, even just walking. But but for some people, there is uh, still an increased risk of that. So that's why getting a bone density test is important if you're at risk, if you have people in your family who've had that. Um, certainly, since you've had a fracture, they'd want to look at that. There are other medications that you can take that can help build those bones back up. Here's the thing about vitamin D and calcium. It doesn't do a whole lot to increase the density, the, the thickness of the bone. It just prevents further loss of the bone. So generally speaking, uh -huh. after about age 26 or so, you've laid down as thick a bone as you're going to lay down. And then after that, you're just maintaining. If you have, you know, if you have kids, if you're female, uh, certainly that can sort of sap that out of you a little bit. You need to maintain that through those pregnancies. But the, the medications I'm talking about, the big group of them, there's several different types, but bisphosphonates is one group. There's a little, uh, lots of different ones that you can take either by mouth or an infusion. Depending on that bone density test, uh, you know, that can be very beneficial in addition to the calcium and the vitamin D. And that can actually make your bones a little bit thicker over time and try to, you know, reduce the risk of that fracture. Okay. Now, I... I don't have a general, uh, I call them general practices anyway. Um, I, my cardiologist sort of serves a purpose, although I do have other physicians I go to. Now, um, should I work with him more maybe on my diet? I eat very healthy. And I, Lord, I, I, I don't, don't know. Yeah, I don't think, Kay, I don't think that the diet's probably going to be beneficial uh, just because you're eating so well. If the yeah. cardiologist isn't isn't comfortable getting that bone density test, okay, so that's like an X-ray that they'll do yeah. to oh, determine not not the not the fracture, but this is a different type of X-ray that's going to look at your spine and at yeah. your hip and several other places to determine okay. the thickness of those bones. If okay. he's not comfortable doing that, I, I probably would go to somebody else to do that. Okay. I want one quick question. Do you see any value in going to a geriatrician uh, in addition to anybody else considering my age? I'm so yeah, surprised. You know, if, you know, if I, I were everything. 90, I would, I would consider that to be my main doctor because they have been trained either in family medicine or in internal medicine and uh, sort of as a baseline of their medical training and then receive extra training and a fellowship uh, for geriatrics. And they do have a lot of experience with treating uh, all the conditions that you would get as you get older, and in particularly about medications, which is not something that's always taught in those other specialties because there's subtle differences about what works and doesn't works, doesn't work in elderly patients, and then also what the interactions of those medications are. So I, I think that's probably a benefit for you if you want to check out you know, a couple of geriatricians in your area. Yeah, well, we have two, but they are midtown, and transportation is a problem for me. But if I can get one place, I can get to another. So, uh, yeah, I won't be. I okay, won't be you, crawl, you, you take it, you take care and and uh and do exactly what they're telling you to do on getting better because we don't want another fracture there. But I would get that bone density test and then maybe uh, connect with a geriatrician. I think that'd be a good thing to do. <music>
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and calls concerning any kind of health issues that you might have this morning. Got some really good calls so far. A couple of people that have been patiently waiting on the line. Let's go to Dale, who is on the road, I believe. Good morning, Dale. Good morning, Doc. Uh, really enjoy your show, sir. Thank you. What's your uh, question this morning? Well, my question is uh, dealing with the COVID vaccine trials. Uh, would you suggest folks participating? Would you participate, or or would you uh, tell your patients to participate? Yeah, great, great uh, question. Uh, yes, yes, and yes, I would say. So, uh, so that's you know what the way you do vaccination trials. And I know a lot of different places are really pushing this and really trying to get a vaccine out. Certainly, other countries are trying to do that. Despite what the, the uh, you know, what other countries might be saying, a lot of people are cutting corners on the normal process. And it's really important because vaccines, uh, it's very rigorous in the testing process of that. And there's different phases of, for those trials. Most of the vaccines that are out now are pretty close or already enrolled in phase three trials, which is really the largest and, and one of the final steps before it can be approved for use. And you need a large number of people, different ages of people, different ethnicities and backgrounds, different parts of the country or even world for a lot of these to really look at the safety aspects. It is much, much safer at this point than doing uh, than, you know, if you were to approve a vaccine just because it has an immune response. You want to make sure the vaccine vaccine is efficacious. It's going to do its job to try to protect you provide some level of protection, but another issue is the safety of it. So these trials are very rigorous. Uh, there is a lot of uh, observation that goes on before, before, during, and after the vaccination. In fact, you may have seen in the news the um, um, Oxford vaccine in England was halted for a couple of days while they investigated right. one person, one person, and we're talking about thousands upon thousands of individuals that are enrolled in this. One person had an illness where they went in the hospital and they have to investigate that thoroughly before they can continue uh, the trial. So it does get a lot of attention and information. Uh, there is some risk with anything like this. So certainly each individual has to make that, you know, that um, uh, choice about that. And, just because you're enrolled in the trial doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the vaccine because to know how this works, 
uh, in some of these vaccination trials, there was a placebo to compare the two groups, and that's part of the efficacy. Uh, but now we're really looking at safety more than anything else on a lot of these trials. So you may qualify for that. Uh, there is a qualification process. So just because you want to participate doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to do that. Um, and then also, you know, there's a time commitment for that. Usually there might be some dispensation for travel or, uh, you know, for other things to, to participate in it. But usually, usually there's not much benefit further than, you know, just the information that we need. But in order to do this safely and to know that yeah. what we're doing is going to have an effect, we do need a lot of people that are enrolled. Now, tr total, you know, truth I, around here, there's a, a lot of interest in doing that. Uh, we at the University Medical Center, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're looking for individuals that might be uh, enrolled in that. A lot of healthcare professionals might be in an initial wave. So, uh, you know, around around here in Jackson, we're looking at, uh, you know, I might be one of those individuals right now. I'm not enrolled in one. Certainly I would be, uh, you know, would be uh, interested in that. And I've been already talking about it with my patients. We're just not quite to the prime time here. But if there are ways to sign up for that already with some of the vaccines and there's a number of them, you know, it's, it's everything that has the availability within this country to have people to sign up would be at the normal safety points where they could enroll in that, if that makes sense. In other words, there's not something that I would advise patients, hey, don't sign up for this vaccination trial, because even though the process has been sped up a good bit, they're still right. going through those hoops to make sure that it's safe. Well, you talk to some people about it, Doc, and, and, and the rumors out there, uh, oh, you're going to get COVID if you get it, you got to be chance if they would just educate themselves about it uh you're actually not getting the virus injected you're actually getting a protein injected right right exactly and there's a number of different viruses uh uh sorry vaccines that they're using for this but you're exactly right there's you will not be injected with live covid virus and yeah. if there's even a protein that's made uh, you know, the, on the virus coating, uh, which most of these have, um, that's not something that you can actually get the virus from. Um, same that, you know, a lot of people had issues with that with, with the flu vaccine too. It's really the antigens that we are giving to people and we're utilizing the immune system's ability to recognize that antigen as something that's foreign and produce antibodies and or an, an immune response to it that lasts for at least, uh, you know, however long, we don't know yet, but uh, we, you know, at least through the season, uh, if it's something like flu and preferably longer than that with some of our other vaccines. So yeah, vaccinations are highly misunderstood by a lot of people in the lay public. And unfortunately, because of the politicization of it, uh, along with everything else, um, yes. there's a lot of misinformation out yes, there sir. about that. So trust your physician on this. Um, you know, vaccinations certainly have saved probably more lives in the last 150 years than any other um, any other uh, medical breakthrough other than sanitary conditions with the toilet. So, oh, oh, that's oh, oh my doc's okay. It's my wife that's having the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, there may be some uh, there may be some home or relationship overlays there that I don't want to get into. So. <laughs> 
encourage encourage Dale uh, that you you may not can uh, argue that case too too strongly. <laughs> that all right, sir. Uh, thank you very much. Sure, thank you for calling, Dale. We appreciate it. Uh, I think we have John back from Utica. All right, thank you, uh, John. Thanks for calling back. Sorry about that. Sometimes we uh, slip up and uh, lose people on the line, but I do thank you for calling back. I believe you had another question. Yes, actually, this is his better half. John is. Uh, he was going through uh, blood pressure spikes. That's what you were discussing when he got cut off, and right. he's going through that right now. And he's really feeling pretty loud. So I, he was on hold, and I just took the phone so that we could get this question in. Uh, my name is Jacqueline, and uh, some of his symptoms were mainly nausea, uh, reflux with belching and dizziness, and it, whatever he eats, no matter what he eats, he gets sick. If he doesn't eat, he gets sick. So he's been sick for over a year with this problem, and he just found out about the SIBO today. Uh, can these can these symptoms cause the spikes as well, the nausea, the reflux, and the dizziness? Yeah, they certainly can. Um, and it doesn't have to be caused by SIBO, but if you have recurrent nausea, I'm thinking about you know just a couple other conditions like gastroesophageal reflux you mentioned, uh, if that's chronic in nature and you measure blood pressure when you're having that, those symptoms, certainly it could be higher and it could be spikes. It could, the blood pressure could be low. And when you have those symptoms, certainly it could be higher. Uh, belching uh, can certainly do it too. Um, patients who have severe diabetes and have uh, uh, gastric um, uh, delays and gastric emptying, uh, they can have uh, spikes in their blood pressure. So, it's really amazing how tightly our gut is connected to our brain and the functioning of the body. But certainly all of those symptoms, Jacqueline, that you mentioned uh, of your husband's could certainly cause those spikes in blood pressure. So I do think treating that, that SIBO uh, and hopefully getting, you know, these symptoms uh, taken care of, I think that's probably going to impact at least a little bit of those symptoms. If it doesn't, again, they, they need to, to dive a little bit deeper. There are a couple of conditions that can cause blood pressure spikes um, mm -hmm. over time. Some of those are, um, are tumors that are found in the abdominal region. So I'm not sure if they've looked at those, but if you treat, I treat the SIBO first. If mm -hmm. that is uh, successfully treated and the blood pressure spikes go away, I don't think they have to, to dive any further into that. But if they're still there after that and the symptoms aren't there that he was having before, then there's, they probably need to look a little bit uh, more closely uh, for other causes of that. Okay, this is my last question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Don has had reflux uh, disease for probably 20 years. It was under control all that time, you know, as long as he ate right and took his meds, he had no problems. Uh, but just fairly recently, in the past year, he's had this severe reflux. It, no matter what they give him, he can't. It's not controlled, you know, Prilosec, they've tried everything. Can SIBO worsen reflux disease or cause the symptoms yeah. to be worse? Yeah, I've heard that. Um, they definitely can, uh, Can it, it definitely can worsen it over time. So mm, okay. um, and that, that all sort of fits together with it. Um, now, reflux, it, there's other things also that can cause it. I'm betting that he's already had some. Uh, imaging maybe, or a oh, functional yeah. study that looked at the lower part of his esophagus, but that's another place if you have a hiatal hernia that develops over time, certainly that could worsen 
uh, worsen reflux or other changes. Sometimes you have to do an EGD where you go down and uh, basically uh, take a piece of the stomach lining and test it. Or there's another test for H. pylori, which is a bacteria that can live in there. I'm betting they've already done all this if they're oh, yeah, more yeah, yeah. diagnosing with SIBO, but just to let everybody else know there's other things. But yeah, certainly that could cause the reflux symptoms too. Okay. Well, Doctor, you've been most helpful. We appreciate you so much. Thank you, Jacqueline, and uh, good luck to you and your husband on that. I hope he has a full recovery. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy Podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. A couple more callers on the line. Want to try to squeeze them in? It's going to be pretty tight, so we got about uh, maybe one or two minutes for each of them. Let's go to Sue in Beaumont first. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I just want to ask you a question, right quick. I've, I've often wondered why aren't other warm-blooded mammals like ourselves, like the great apes that share like 99% of our DNA, why aren't they susceptible to this coronavirus? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I've been reading up on this a little bit, and Sue, you're right. They are. Um, so, uh, gorillas, orangutans, and they found this out in zoos. Uh, so they've been seeing this, uh, cats can get it. Dogs are a little less acceptable, but certainly any mammal, uh, has the potential to get it. Now the difference is how they're affected. So today they don't seem to be as affected as humans are. So a little bit more resilient than we are in, uh, fighting off COVID, but they can, uh, they can contract it. And they could potentially spread it. We don't know that much about it, but that's part of the reason why if you look at the quarantine guidelines, it says be quarantined away from your pets. Because if you have a dog or a cat in the house, potentially they could um, contract it themselves and spread it to somebody else. So um, great question, Sue. And uh, certainly they can get it. But like a lot of other things, they tend to be a little bit more resilient than we are. Well, thank you. All right. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling Let's go to Ola in Gulfport. Good morning, Ola. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Uh, I was wanting to know if you have something that you could recommend for H. pylori. I've had been on a couple of antibiotics, and it doesn't seem to work. That's a tough situation, Ola, because uh, some patients, are they have a lot more resistance than we used to, which is why... I, there's so many different, there's a couple of different regimens out there. And uh, sometimes it depends on how you're, how they test for it. So, um, it, but if you have, if you've tested positive several times in a row and already gone through a couple of different treatments, you may want to, if you're not seeing a gastroenterologist, you probably should be at that point. 
just because if there's an increased risk with H. pylori that your symptoms are going to get better and there's a, a lot more uh, risk of getting an ulcer or other problems in your, in your uh, stomach. So they may want to do a little bit more prolonged treatment or a little different treatment than, than the standard ones at that point. But it's real important to take all the different medications that they're prescribing uh, for that, um, for the entire course and really stick with it. I'm sure you've been doing that, but I would, I would go back to your GI doctor and see, sometimes it takes a couple of treatments in a row for some people, uh, to get rid of it. And then you can get it back later in time, so, which really have to be sort of dependent upon the symptoms. Right. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ola, for calling. We appreciate it. Let's go to Alan. Alan, we've got probably about three minutes, two and a half to three minutes. What's your question this morning? Okay, this is my comment. On the durable mask, you need to wash them with dish soap on a daily basis so you don't develop a MERS or other culture causing a lung infection, which make yourself sick. Uh, the yeah, same and, those, thing, and you said durable. That's the key. That So if you have like an N95 mask, don't do that. You're going to ruin it. But if it's a cloth mask or if it's uh, you know, one of the ones that are sort of homemade or you buy commercially, you're exactly right. So every day washing that with soap and water or, you know, throat it, detergents work well, too. Sorry about that to jump in on you there, Alan, but go ahead. That's fine. You as a pediatrician run into this. These kids that are vaping and smoking will cause a tremendous problem with their lung function test following a fit test for use respirator, SPA, SCBA or supplied air if they have like an ambition to have a career in EMS, fire, hazmat, or any of the higher emergency fields, uh, you have to put some real effort into doing a lung function test anyway. And if you do any amount of smoking or vaping, it just has a long-term effect that they just can't fix. That was my second point. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're right. right. My bottom line on that is if you're va vaping and you're younger and you're listening, stop. It can ruin your lungs and it could potentially, as, uh, as you said, Alan, hurt a future career in some fields. You're right. And this, this last one is going out to geriatrics or any kind of a cardiac patient. Uh, I quite commonly have seen in my experience they're misdiagnosed of heart, of left heart failure and they get treatment for infection uh, in their lungs when the patient is actually experiencing left heart failure, and they treat what they think is an infection, and the person goes on and they take, they take the antibiotics and end up dying of an MI or left heart failure. So what I'm saying is if you're a geriatric or a heart patient, you don't have a cold until your cardiologist tells you it's not your heart, then you have a cold. And uh, I remember I lost one friend several years ago because I hadn't been close enough to him. And that's just a point I wanted to make. And that's the end of my comments. And I appreciate your show. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so uh, certainly cardiac conditions, it's not just geriatrics, but any age. And you mentioned left heart failure, but also right heart failure can sometimes mask as other things. Dyspnea or air hunger, shortness of breath is a lay term for that. That certainly is a symptom of both heart failure and uh, lung infection. So if uh, you got to sort of tease those little things out uh, to try to figure out if it's one or the other, sometimes you do have to treat one before you sort of recognize it's the other. But uh, certainly if any kind of symptom of heart disease uh, that a person has that you did need to treat that. Mm -hmm.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org radio or by using your favorite podcasting app.